0: We're continuing our series on looking at Advent, looking at Christmas through a variety of different lenses. We started out by looking at Advent through the lens of the skeptic. We looked at John the Baptist's father who didn't really believe uh, what God had said, uh, what God promised him would happen. Uh, The next Sunday, we looked at Christmas for the marginalized, and we looked at the life of Mary, who's very poor, a nobody from nowhere, and how God spoke into her life. Then last week, Uh, We looked at the wise men and we asked the question, how do the the faithful, how are those who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah view Advent? It was not without some bumps in the road. This morning, we're going to consider Advent from maybe a little bit different perspective than you thought of before. And that is from the perspective of the self-obsessed. So, I began to think about you know who really in our culture in our society, the, you know that personifies someone who is you know it 's completely all about them, and I thought, well, you know maybe there's some some divas out there that I could I could get a picture of them on the screen that might do it, uh, maybe a billionaire you know billionaires tend to kind of think about themselves uh, before everybody else, maybe an, an athlete that is has a reputation for not really being a team player but really makes it all about them, but then it came to me I figured out you know the 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 one a character that really describes living for yourself, and so I'm going to put a picture of that uh, individual on the screen. <laughs> I'm going to take you back to your childhood. Uh, 1974, Disney came out with a movie rendition of uh, Christopher Robin as Winnie the Pooh. Tigger is actually introduced in the second book, uh, but Disney puts him in the in the movie right up front because he's an important character. But I want to remind you of his words when he introduces himself. To Winnie the Pooh. The wonderful thing about tiggers is tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made of rubber and our bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about tiggers is that I'm the only one. Tiggers are cuddly fellows. They're awfully, awfully sweet. Everyone else is jealous and that's why I repeat. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are marvelous claps. They're loaded with vim and vigor. They love to sit in your laps. They're jumpy, bumpy, clumpy, dumpy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is that I'm the only one. Yes, I'm the only one. Have you ever met somebody that uh, kind of approaches life that way? Have you ever looked in the mirror and seen that person looking back at you? So perhaps the notion of self-obsessed is not that far from our doorstep, and there may be something here for each one of us this morning. Here are the Word of God, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to skip ahead, and we're going to read verses 16 through 20. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, On Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written of the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go seek diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 16, but the intervening verses the wise men go to Bethlehem. They find Jesus with his mother Mary, they worship him, they give him their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and then either one of them or all of them, not sure which, scripture isn't clear, have a dream to say, don't go disclose this information to Herod, go home by a different route. And so they do. They don't go back and tell Herod the location of the Messiah, and that's where we pick it up in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning uh, not necessarily seeing ourselves in this passage, uh, other than perhaps... Uh, Parents who are crushed by an unspeakable disaster. Father, I'm guessing that very few of us are resonating with Herod right now, and that might be a mistake. It may be that we are overlooking something that's deeply embedded in our hearts that you want to get at, Uh, not to harm us, not to oppress us, but actually to set us free from the slavery of self-obsession. So, Father, I pray that you would give us open minds and hearts to to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you would, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, give us the opportunity to worship you with our minds, uh, with our intellect, with our reason. Uh, Father, we pray that you would teach us. My words are inconsequential. They are of no importance. It is only your eternal word that can penetrate our hearts and minds. It can actually transform us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so, Father, it is that for which we pray this morning. Forgive my sin, please help me to not be a hindrance today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the notion of rejecting God's Messiah might feel empowering at the time, but ultimately it neither fulfills the unbeliever nor impedes God's plan for salvation. That's where we're headed today. And and in two things in particular, first, uh, we want to look at the unbeliever and the notion of rejecting God's Messiah. And I want to be clear from the outset, we're not just talking about people who just say across the board, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe he's the savior of the world. He's not for me. There are certainly people like that. There may be some folks that are here this morning that think that. And if you do, we're so happy you're here. We hope you'll come back. We hope you'll find a place uh, that is safe and, and welcoming where you can wrestle with those kinds of questions. And regardless of the conclusions you come to, we hope you know that this is a fellowship where we gladly uh, we're glad to have you, and we hope that that you would uh, get something out of your time with us. But for those who are here who claim to be disciples of Jesus, do we not have moments of pretty radical and really strong unbelief? Do we not have moments of doubt? Do we not have moments where we kind of want to control things and hold it pretty close to the vest and say, "God, I have this." And in a sense, at that moment, we become, uh, or at least we show traits of the unbelieving. And I think that's what this passage shows us. Again, not to beat us up spiritually and tell us how bad we are, but to tell us that the Lord has a different plan for us. I have four observations in this text, so let's jump in. The first is this. Uh, We ought not assume that the Messiah is good news for everyone. Look at verses 1 through 3. We're reminded that Jesus has been born at this point. He's probably somewhere between nine months and two years old. Uh, and that they're in Bethlehem, and some wise men come and they ask the question in Jerusalem. It's logical for them to go to Jerusalem. They're looking for a king, they're looking specifically for the king of the Jews. We mentioned this uh, last week, and so it would be logical for them to go to the palace and to find out why isn't everybody celebrating? Where, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? What they don't know, because it's still not clear to them, is that this is a very different king setting out on a very different purpose. So when Herod, who is the current holder of the kingship, hears this, he is troubled. Now, the, the word in the Greek means that, that he is really agitated, that he is upset. So this is not Herod kind of going, I don't really like that very much. This is Herod saying, excuse me, somebody's head's gonna roll on this one. Is there a rebellion going on? And he really gets himself worked up and all of Jerusalem with him. We tend to spend our time this time of year with the shepherds and with the wise men and with Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, and it tends to be, you know, this wonderful moment. But we have to remember that Herod was very, very happy in the position that he held, and he held on to it very tightly. He had no problem taking the lives of some of his own family members. He murdered one of his wives in her sleep because he was fearful that she was going to betray him and try to put somebody else on the throne. He had another one of his wives and her son exiled where they died in poverty because he was worried that the mom was going to try to put the son on the throne too soon. Herod really liked being the king of the Jews. In 37 B.C., Mark Anthony, in his quest for becoming Caesar, actually gave Herod that title. Mark Anthony ended up being on the losing end uh, of that altercation. But Octavian, when he came to power, Herod endeared himself to Octavian. In 31 B.C., Herod was named by the new Caesar king of the Jews. So this is a man of power. This is a man of influence, yes? Yes. He's under the thumb of Rome, he's, he's got to do what Rome says, but this is a guy that could travel to Rome and he could get an audience with Caesar anytime he liked. This is a person who's very comfortable with his title, and now he's told that unbeknownst to him, there's a new king of the Jews that's arrived on the scene. We can kind of understand why Herod says, no thank you, it's all good, I have this under control, not during my watch. But notice also that it's not just Harris saying, hey, hey, I'm, I'm good. We don't need this change. But it's all of Jerusalem with him. Now, this doesn't mean that they went out and took a survey. It doesn't mean that they knocked on everybody's doors and said, no, we, we've got a new king coming. What's your opinion of this? What they're talking about are the influencers. They're talking about the people who drove the politics of the day, the, the policy makers. They're talking about the people of influence. They're talking about the leaders of, of, of industry and of business that kept the economic... Lifeblood flowing in that part, and the people of influence were upset as well. Why? Because when the king's not happy, heads roll. And who wants a war? By the way, who needs a civil war that disrupts the economy? It it hurts our standing in the rest of the Roman Empire. We remember the last time we had a civil war around here, the Romans came in and they wiped everybody out. This is not good for business. We don't need a new king. We would like to have just some peace, and economic growth, and stability. So, new king, no thank you. Now, I want to go down a side road here for just one second uh, and speak to something that isn't specifically in the text. But when you or I have the opportunity to share the gospel with other folks, and the gospel, by definition, is good news, uh, there are times when we maybe paint it in a way that isn't necessarily helpful for folks. We, we say things like, you know, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're just going to be a lot happier. You're, you're just going you know, your life's going to be a lot better. Uh, there was a pastor that was uh, talking about that. Uh, he had some folks in his church who were sharing the gospel with people, and they put it in those terms. And one of the gentlemen reached out to the pastor and said, I have a question for you. You'd be okay if I asked it. He said, sure, fire away. And he said this, I have friends who say I need Jesus in order to be happy, but I'm happy the way I am. Why should I bother with God? He probably will just make me stop doing some of the things I really enjoy. Uh, so just as a as a side note, um, Coming to Christ for salvation is, is the best thing you can do with your life. But that doesn't mean that your life's going to be simple. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be happy. In, in, in fact, following Jesus at times is going to make your life very difficult. It's going to make it quite the challenge. And so sometimes we kind of get in our Christian cocoon, and we can't figure out why everybody isn't just really happy at the good news of the coming of the Messiah. But here's Herod as, as maybe a, a bit of a, 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 not of a caricature, but a picture of, Of that notion that, are are you sure I really need God? Because I've got my life in a pretty good spot right now. The Messiah is not necessarily good news for everyone. Secondly, we tend to want to defend our turf to your death, right? We we tend to want to defend ourselves even if it costs you something. Look uh, at verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, but he wasn't going to be denied. He wasn't going to to just sit there idly by and let someone take his throne. But he makes someone else pay the price. He sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem. And all in that region who were two years older under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod had been raised in Judaism. Herod's grandfather was an Edomite by descendant, but he had converted to the the Jewish faith. Herod should have been one of the key people saying, hey, let's keep our eyes open for the Messiah. Eventually those promises that we've read about in the Torah are gonna come true. And we ought to be looking because Messiah, he's gotta come sometime. Maybe he'll come during our lifetimes, but that's not Herod. The one who should have been anticipating the Messiah has a brutally cruel response. I don't know what kind of picture you have in your mind for the numbers of children who were slaughtered uh, I remember when I was a kid and I, and I heard this story, I, I had a picture of you know just hundreds or thousands of children and, and Bethlehem wasn't that big of a town and the surrounding region wasn't that greatly populated, but I think a fair guess would be at least a couple of dozen children lost their lives that day when Herod decided that he was going to make sure that someone else died in order that he could stay on the throne. He was going to make sure that this threat was stamped out. And I, and I think what Herod proves is that, that when push comes to shove, there are areas in each one of our lives, not just in Herod's life, but in each one of our lives, where, where we might like Jesus as Savior, but we don't particularly care for him as Lord. There are areas in my life where I want to rule my life. I say, Lord, I've got this part, and I want to make sure I'm saved. I want to make sure I'm going to heaven, but please, please don't ask to take over this piece of my kingdom. I want to rule this piece of my kingdom. And you can fill in that blank whichever way you want to, but the notion that that we're completely open-handed when we come to Christ and we immediately allow him to be Lord of every area of our lives is just, is just naive. It's just silly because that's a process of growth. And Herod's an example of somebody who says, There's parts of my life I'm not willing to let go. You know, worship God, give him, you know, credit for where credit's due, sure. But he's not going to get my throne. And Herod certainly uh, had the place where he drew a line in the strand. Where's your, where's your line in the sand? Where are the areas of my life where I say, here's a hill that I'm, I'm gonna die on. I'm willing to defend my life. And to not see myself with that kind of Herod temperament I think is foolish because it's really true about my life. Thirdly, not only is the Messiah not good news and not only do we tend to defend our own thrones, however we may define them, we have to understand that rejecting the Messiah has consequences. Look at verses 17 and 18. These children have been murdered. And and the author, Matthew, says this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. It's interesting that God knows the human condition. He knows the human heart so well as to know what Herod's going to do before Herod ever decides to do it, because that's how corrupt our hearts are. And the prophet speaks to the grief and to the pain. A voice was heard in Ramah, that's that region of Bethlehem, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Unspeakable violence, complete disregard for human life. Can you imagine? Being a mother holding a two-year-old in your arms or holding a nine-month in your arms only to have him ripped away by a Roman soldier who murders him right before your very eyes. Can you imagine being a father who's clutching to his child, trying to protect him only to be clubbed over the head until he's unconscious and to wake up and to see your dead child right in front of you? This is an unimaginable crime. We don't like to speak in these terms. We don't like to go here because it's so brutal and it's so awful, but that's where the human heart can lead. Shattered families, completely destroyed. Those are scars you carry for the rest of your life. It was probably about 15 years ago. It's 2019, so it's probably about 15 or 16 years ago. I was in our office, which was over on the corner over here. We didn't yet have uh, this building. We hadn't even I really thought about having a building in those days. One of our staff members was coming into work that morning when she got a phone call. Her brother's a captain in the Army Rangers. He was serving in Iraq, and she just got news. They had been killed in a firefight. I will never forget, to the day I die, the shrieking of her voice when she got that news. How completely unconsolable she was. How she was sobbing in a way that I had never seen uh, before and have never seen since. There, there is a moment of grief that is beyond explanation where a person becomes inconsolable, and those were the parents of Bethlehem. That was the moment that Herod created in his desire to hold onto the throne. Someone else was going to pay that price. Now, you might be saying or thinking, Tom, that's too harsh. That, don't put me in that same uh, picture with Herod. My reaction to those moments where I don't want Christ to be my Lord are not violent, They, they, I'm not out to hurt others. I don't make other people pay for my sins. And I would say, I'm, I'm thankful that, that you're not violent. I'm thankful that, that I'm not violent in in the terms that we've described here, but let's not kid ourselves. Let's not just kind of whistle past the graveyard uh, as if it's not there. Our commitment to self-rule might be much subtler than Herod's, but it's there nonetheless, and it is not innocent, and there are consequences to my sin and to yours. To suggest otherwise is simply not true. Are we really going to suggest that we've never tre- cheated anyone, that we've never held back something that was due to another, whether it was on a test in school when we were younger or we fudged on a, on a expense report? Just put a couple extra bucks in our pocket or we, we justified our, our keeping money from the IRS because it's the government and we don't like them after all and they got plenty of money. You ever lost your temper with someone because it kind of stepped on your toes on your turf and you were going to show them that that just wasn't going to stand? Ever spread a bad word about another person simply because you didn't like them and you uh, had the opportunity to make yourself better by making them look worse? You ever known you should really help somebody but you just decided to be stingy? just decided to keep what you had in your pocket because you know it really is good to have a little extra for a rainy day you ever find yourself lusting after someone else but really not sharing that with anyone rejecting the messiah hurts other people and there are stains of it in every area of our lives and for us to whistle past this passage say well i've never killed anybody i've never done anything that unspeakable is to ignore the consequences that my sin have in the lives of the people around me, not only in my own life. I love uh, the author Anne Lamott because she makes me think. I, I, don't, I probably don't agree with a lot of what she writes, but, but she writes in such a way that I'm compelled to read her. Uh, and, and, I, and I love a lot of what I read, even when I kind of, I'm in a love-hate relationship with it, but she really gets right to the point. And she was thinking about this notion of, of her own sin. And the impact that it has. And she wrote this. I have thought such awful thoughts that I cannot even say them out loud. Because they would make Jesus want to drink gin straight out of the cat dish. (laughs) Man, that's true. (laughs) That's Tom Ricks right there. The consequence of my sins might not be Herod-esque but they certainly spill over and do damage into other people's lives. My callousness, even my busyness, even my my maybe not doing the wrong thing, but my lack of doing the right thing on a regular basis has consequences. But that's not the only consequence. It's not just a consequence to others, but there's another consequence to sin that comes to all of us. Look at verse 19 in this passage. But when Herod died, guess what? You're going to die because of your sin. Guess what? I'm going to die because of my sin. The wages of sin are death. Uh, As a poet once said, nobody gets out of here alive. And the second consequence of sin is very personal. It's intensely personal because we all know life is short. It's fleeting. It's just a moment and then it's gone. We were talking to some friends the other night at dinner. We were talking about our grown-up children. We are like, how did that happen? They were were just this tall a couple of years ago, and now they're grown, and now we're grandparents. What on earth, where has the time gone? Herod reigned in Jerusalem for 37 years. That's a pretty good run. 37 years is is not a short time, in in one sense of the word, uh, to be uh, the king. But in another sense, it's a wisp of the wind. It's a breath and it's gone. You don't hear people who live in Palestine today scratching their heads going, we ought to think about how Herod did it, and we ought to do that. Herod is simply a footnote on the pages of history who's rarely mentioned, except in some very small scholarly circles of people who want to to study those ancient times, and at Christmas time is a bad example for how not to react to the Messiah. Other than that, Herod is completely irrelevant to your life and to my life. And yet Herod was like you and I in that spot that was slowly boiling that eventually catches up with us. I've been the pastor at Green Tree Church for a little over 21 years. Uh, This Christmas Eve, Tuesday night, uh, will be my 21st Christmas Eve sermon. Some of you have suffered through all 21 of those, (laughs) or 20 and counting. You get 21 on Tuesday if you come back. But you know what? Eventually, I'm just going to be a plaque on a wall somewhere hopefully not in the bathroom. Hopefully they put it somewhere else. I was talking to a friend recently who has retired and I said, well, "How did that feel? What was that like?" And so well, one day you're the boss of the company and the next day you're you're not really anybody, all that important. Death will eventually find all of us. That is the second consequence to our rejection of the Messiah and the sin that is in our lives. Where did Herod's self-serving get him? Eventually, it got him standing before the king of kings and the lord of lords, being called to account for his life. So when the poet Henley writes in Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, God scoffs and he says, nonsense. It's a height of foolishness. It is appointed for mankind, each person wants to die and then to face God. Rejecting the Messiah has everlasting consequences if we do not turn to him in faith we will stand next to herod having to answer for our own sins but the good news in this passage is the fourth observation and it's this god's plan of salvation is never thwarted it doesn't miss a beat god ultimately wins and here's the good news for you and me if our faith is in christ we win with him We get to ride along on the coattails of Jesus, so to speak. I want to take you back to Psalm 98 for just a moment uh, as we look at this point. And uh, and I want you to see a passage of Scripture that's written by, he's he's a poet, he's a songwriter, uh, he's, he's got a way with words. And he's talking about God's salvation as if it were already accomplished. As if Jesus had already come back the second time. But he's so sure of God's plan for salvation that he writes it as if it's a done deal. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For his he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his only harm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation and he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now that hadn't yet come to completion, but it's true today and it was true that day that God's plan isn't going to be thwarted. So we come forward now from the Psalms, which were written about a thousand years before Jesus, to when Jesus is born. And we come back to Matthew chapter 2, and in verses 19 and 20, we read the, the, the end of this part of the story, so to speak. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in his dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, rise, take the child's mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. God's plan is marching on. Your salvation and my salvation are too precious to him to let a Herod stand in the way. He's going to accomplish his grace in our lives. And so we see that happening in Jesus' day. But then we also have scripture that points us to a new day that hasn't yet arrived. Let me take you to Revelation 21. And here are the words of the promise for us this morning. This is Jesus seated on the throne. That's the, the person about whom the author is writing. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for those who persist in being cowardly, Those who persist in not putting their faith in me, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God's going to make all things right one way or another. Either I'm going to allow Jesus to pay for my sins or I'm going to pay for them. But the glory and the beauty of this particular passage of Scripture said God is going to bring his grace to this world. And he is going to offer it to you no matter the cost. Because these children who died are not the only people that die in the story of Jesus. He's going to die. He was born to die. We're going to look at that on Tuesday night. What does Christmas mean to the coming Savior? And what God is doing is he's bringing salvation to you and to me. So Jesus is born. He lives. He grows. He ministers. He dies. He rises again in order that you and I might receive grace in order that we who take Jesus off the throne, that we who who not every time we see him say, oh, this is really good news, we who, who kind of ignore the consequences of our action and kind of like to bury our heads on the spiritual sand and pretend we're not as bad as we are, God says to us, you need salvation, but nothing's going to stand in the way of me bringing it. Now, what are you going to do with that offer this morning? Maybe it's already yours and this is just a good reminder for all of us that we, we've put our faith in Christ. And we need to pray that God would protect us against those herod moments where, where we, we turn a deaf ear to God's loving, graceful commands in our lives. Uh, but for some of us, we have persisted in our unbelief and we have persisted in rejecting the author, the offer that God gives us. So let me invite you one more time to trust in God's grace for your life. I want to go back to Anne Lamott as we wrap up this morning because, uh, again, I I just love the way she puts things. But Anne Lamott, in speaking of this, says this, the movement of grace brings us from the package of self-obsessed to a spiritual awakening. That's the plan of God. It says plan of salvation is freely offered to us. Yes, we can turn a blind eye. Yes, we can be uh, kind of whistling past the graveyard of our own sinfulness. But this, brother, this morning, brothers and sisters, let's turn our hearts again to God's word and to see his promise and his hope and ask him to apply that to our lives for his glory and for our good. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless your name this morning. This is, this is the uh, opening lines of your earthly story. And they're not all happy lines. Father, I can't imagine how those parents felt. I can't imagine what the rest of their lives were like. And I know someday you, you set all of that right. And I know someday you will, you will set all evil. Uh, you'll, you'll make all things right. It will be confronted once and for all. Uh, but Father, in this lifetime, in this moment, help us not to stand outside of this passage of Scripture and think, well, I'd never be a Herod. I would never do something that awful. Father, help us to see that, that there are moments when we reject your lordship and it may not cost someone else their life, but it certainly does spiritual damage to us and the overflow of that, it does hurt others. But Lord, thank you that your salvation wins in the end. We pray that it would be powerful in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.